the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at Let's Talk Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. What kind of animals were there? The verses tell us to each a male and a female of animals that were unclean. That would mean ritualistically unclean. It must have been that God revealed to Noah which animals were clean and which were not, because technically you have the clean and unclean distinction only with the people of Israel. So God must have revealed this especially to Noah because it's not revealed later until Leviticus chapter 11. Then you have seven other animals, which would be three pairs plus one of clean animals, ritualistically clean Probably these animals were for sacrifice later and for eating. Remember, up to this point, man did not eat animals. I would like to be able to see for myself, and one of them would be the animals lined up coming to the ark. Obviously, God's hand was involved in this, because nowhere in the Bible does it say that Noah or anyone in his family was, shall we say, an animal whisperer. Welcome to Verse by Verse as we continue with our series titled, Noah and the Flood. You know, the flood was not just an historical event. This story we have in Genesis points us to Jesus Christ. But let's get back to those animals for a second. Have you ever wondered how the ark was able to contain all those animals? We will learn about that in today's verse-by-verse program. So here is our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. I'd like you to look at John chapter 10. I know there are people who struggle with the whole issue of eternal security. And the passage of Scripture that to me is the clearest and most helpful and most direct statement in all the Bible about eternal security is John chapter 10. I don't know how anybody could interpret it otherwise. I don't know how Jesus could have said it any more clear than this. Verse 27 of John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They hear me, I have a relationship with them and they follow me. God's sheep follow him. They don't necessarily follow as closely as they'd like to follow. There are times they may be lagged behind, but as a way of life, as a habit, as a general direction, they're following the shepherd. And I give eternal life to them. It's a gift. And they shall never perish. I don't know how you can say it any clearer. They shall never, ever perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Satan can't. Trials can't. You can't even do it. And what believer would want to ever snatch himself out of the Lord's hands? You are in his hands. You are not holding on to him. He is holding on to you. It is not so much the perseverance of the saints. It is that the Savior perseveres with us. 
But notice this. If we only had that, that would be sufficient, that Jesus Christ is holding on to us. That is the security of the believer. But we have double security. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. You know the old Allstate commercial, you're in good hands with Allstate? You're in better hands with Jesus Christ and the Father. Those hands of Allstate, if I recall, they're open. Christ's hands and the Father's hands are closed around you. You are secure. As we go back to Genesis 7, we read in verses 2 through 9 that Noah, and we read it before so we won't take the time now to do that, but Noah was not alone in the ark. According to verse 4, God says in seven days, he's going to send the flood. So Noah now has to take care of some last-minute preparations or last-week preparations, the preparations of the last week. And this would entail getting the animals on board, making sure he and his family are on board before the waters come. Now, at this point, we want to think through several issues that skeptics have raised and problems. And I do this so that you would be strengthened in your faith, especially those of you who are challenged by people, maybe university students, maybe others who think that they have all the answers about this and how unscientific this really was. Let's look at some of these issues. Number one, and we looked at this a little bit last week, but I want to take it further this week. How could the ark carry all of those animals? Those are a lot of animals. How could they do that? Well, what kind of animals were there? The verses tell us to each a male and a female of animals that were unclean. That would mean ritualistically unclean. It must have been that God revealed to Noah which animals were clean and which were not, because technically you have the clean and unclean distinction only with the people of Israel. So God must have revealed this especially to Noah because it's not revealed later until Leviticus chapter 11. Then you have seven other animals, which would be three pairs plus one of clean animals, ritualistically clean. Probably these animals were for sacrifice later and for eating. Remember, up to this point, man did not eat animals. It's after the flood in Genesis 9 that man is permitted to eat animals. So it may very well have been for this purpose. Now, according to the latest research, and I did some more research this week, there is a book by a man named John Woodmorep who wrote a book called Noah's Ark, A Feasible Study, and his conclusion was only about 16,000 animals needed to be on the ark. When you consider, he said, that not all animals, and we touched on this last week, but all kinds of animals, that would be families of animals in a very non-scientific language. Let's call it families of animals. That, for example, would mean you have horses and zebras and donkeys who probably descended from the same horse-like Kind. Tigers and lions are probably have one common ancestor. Dogs, wolves, uh, coyotes, jackals are from the canine kind. And you have that down the line. We don't know what the original exactly looked like, but it was a family. There's no question that the ark was big enough. Let me read this to you. The measurements of the ark, according to an article that I read, the measurements of the ark came to 1.54 million cubic feet, which is equivalent, and this puts it in perspective, equivalent to the volume of 522 standard American railroad stock cars. That's a lot. If you've ever waited for a train to go by, that's a lot. Each of which can hold 240 sheep. Now that would be more than enough room on the ark 
Someone figured it out this way. They said this would leave room for five trains of 99 cars each for food, Noah's family, and a range of the animals if they needed exercise. I don't know if they needed it. So was there enough room on the ark? Absolutely. There is no question about that. Anybody who has ever thought through this and taken the time to research this out would have no question about that. doesn't mean every single animal, but let's say with this book's finding about 16,000 animals. Even if it was higher, it still had ample room. Another question that has been raised, rarely spoken about in church, but I think raised in people's minds, is this. You know where I'm going with this? You know me well enough to know that I've come up with it. I would think about this. One about animal excrements. That's a lot of animals to clean up after. 16,000. I got a little dog and it keeps me busy. I won't go into the details of that, but it keeps me plenty busy. Well, this article I read this week said this, and this is only a suggestion. This may not have been exactly the way it was. I just want you to know there are answers. This is a suggestion. It is doubtful whether the humans had to clean the cages every morning. Possibly they had sloped floors where the manure could fall away from the animals and be flushed away. I mean, after all, there's plenty of water around, right? That wouldn't be a problem. Or be destroyed by, and I don't even know if I'm going to pronounce this word right, vermicomposting. I asked Dean Ortner about this word. He didn't know how to pronounce it. I figured if he didn't, nobody else does. Vermicomposting, and it means composting by worms, which would also provide earthworms, the writer says, as a food source. Very deep bedding can sometimes last for a year without needing a change. Absorbent materials such as sawdust or softwood wood shavings, and especially peat moss, would reduce the moisture content and hence the odor. End of quote. Now that's a suggestion. It might have been like that. Another suggestion, one that John Whitcomb and Henry Morris hold to, is that God brought the animals there, they were fed, and then they went into sort of a hibernation. And that may well have been. They may well have hibernated for all those months. We don't know exactly. The point is that there are answers, and if no one in his family had to take care of the excrement, they could have done it. If they went into hibernation, then that answers that. But we do know this, God supernaturally controlled their body functions just as he overcame all of their natural instincts to bring them to the ark, which raises another question that skeptics often have problems with. And the problem that they have is this, how was Noah able to round up all of these animals? How was it possible? Now the answer really is found in chapter 6 of Genesis verse 20. It says this, of the birds of their kind and of the animals after their kind and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind, watch this, shall come to you to keep them alive. They came to Noah. That's how it was. God miraculously brought them to Noah. I don't think he had to round up anybody. Consider this. The same Lord who provided a great fish to swallow Jonah and another fish in New Testament times to uh, supply tax money for Peter and the Lord Jesus, is certainly capable of bringing the animals to Noah. God doesn't explain to us in scientific language how that happened, but he supernaturally controlled it all, and they came to Noah. Noah didn't have to go around and round up all of these animals. Now, in all of these issues, we don't want to lose sight of the main thrust of the verses. And as I see it, the main thrust is this. While God is getting ready to pour judgments upon the earth, he has provided a way to deliver the godly, to deliver Noah. What does this mean for us today? That is the main message as I see it. 
The question we need to ask is, is there a parallel situation that we find ourselves in, even though we're removed thousands of years, is there anything parallel to what we face today? We don't face a flood. In fact, God said he would never again wipe out, destroy the whole earth with a flood. There have been local floods, but never a universal flood again. So is there a situation? Yes, there is. A situation that's parallel. We have been told that judgment is coming. We have been told that judgment is coming again to this planet in the form, direct judgment I'm talking about now, in the form of what's called the tribulation period or the time of Jacob's trouble. And the question is this, are we simply to praise God that we will be raptured before the storms of judgment hit? Or are we supposed to do something as we're waiting to be raptured and then the storms of judgment hit? I think the answer is found in Second Peter, and you can turn there to Second Peter now. Second Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be here for a little while. We'll still go back to Genesis in a passage, but Second Peter chapter 3. Peter says this in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The day of the Lord is a time period. It is a time period, prophetically, that starts with the tribulation period. It has not started yet. We're not in the day of the Lord yet. It starts with the tribulation period and ends at the close of the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ, known as the Millennial Kingdom, or a 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. It's at the end of the kingdom age, watch this, that Peter says God is going to destroy the earth again. He says, not by water, though, but by fire, with intense heat. And so the question for us is, and by way of application is, in light of knowing this, what should we do? What are we supposed to do? The answer is found in verses 11 through 15. Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's what Peter asks. In light of the fact that you know this, What kind of people should you be in holy conduct and godliness? And he answers, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Let's stop there. The point of these verses is to say that in light of Christ's return and the coming judgment after that, you as believers are to live godly lives. Why should we live godly lives? Why? If we're secure in Jesus Christ, we're in the ark of safety. Why live a godly life? We're not going to experience this judgment. Why? I'll tell you. Peter says a few reasons. First of all, because you want to have a clear conscience. You're going to stand before him. And you want your conscience to be absolutely clear. You don't want him to say, you didn't do well. You were not faithful. In light of his return, we want purified hearts and obedient lives. Secondly, we're to be holy and godly because we realize that all these things are going to be burned up. So why become so comfortable with this stuff? We're pilgrims passing through this earth. Let's not be so comfortable with material things and money and objects because they are temporal. They're only temporal. This is all the frame of reference we have, things, but take God's word at face value. And he says, all these things are going to be burned up. So why get so attached to them? And I urge you, don't become so attached to things. 
They're not that important. They rust and decay, and someday they're going to be completely destroyed. But there is another reason for godly living, and it's one that it's easy to overlook. Notice verse 12 again. Peter says, looking for, and watch this expression, hastening the coming of the day of God. The Greek word for hastening means to accelerate, to accelerate, to speed its coming. Is Peter saying that in some way we can speed the coming of Jesus Christ? Well, it's all in God's sovereign plan. It's all in God's sovereign plan. He knows the end from the beginning, and it's all according to God's timetable. But there is a sense in which we can hasten this. In all fairness, I must say that the Greek word can also be used to eagerly desire, but I don't think that's how he's using it here. I think he's using it here to say that we enter into the process of speeding up and accelerating the return of Christ. I want to suggest to you that the thought here is that we hasten or speed up the coming of Christ when we evangelize the lost. When we evangelize the lost, because in this context, Peter says the very reason that Jesus Christ has not come yet, and that's why people even scoff at his coming and say, well, look, he said it years ago and it hasn't happened, so why do you think it's going to happen now? The reason that Jesus Christ has not returned yet is because of his patience in waiting for the elect to be saved. And that's what he says. Notice verse 15, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Let's put it this way. If Jesus Christ had come a thousand years ago, that would be the end of salvation. You would never have an opportunity. You wouldn't be born. You couldn't experience salvation. If he came for some of us five years ago, ten years ago, you'd never have the opportunity to trust him. He is patiently waiting until his elect are saved. And his elect come to faith in him as we evangelize and we pray And we seek the lost. He says this in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Toward who? Toward the elect, towards God's people. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God's desire is that all come to repentance, and those he has chosen will come to repentance. The point is, is that in some way we hasten, by evangelism, the coming of Jesus Christ. Folks, this is precisely what Noah did. That's the parallel here. This is what Noah did while he waited for the waters of the flood, of judgment. He lived godly, and he proclaimed a message of repentance and righteousness. And that's what Peter is saying we're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to be doing now. Now, you might wonder, did anybody respond to Peter's message? You know what? I think normally we say, no, nobody responded. That's not precisely true. You know who did respond? And I thought about it more this week. His wife responded. His sons responded. His sons' wives responded. Now, I don't know that they were believers at this point, because you keep hearing in Genesis that only you are righteous. It's probably like today, if you're married to an unbeliever, he or she's not saved because they're married to a believer, but the blessings of salvation sort of splash up on them. If God blesses you, they sort of experience some of those blessings. So maybe that's the way it was here. But they did respond. His wife and his sons and daughters-in-law responded. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me, it should tell all of us, that Noah had credibility with his family. Tremendous credibility with his family. They knew that his faith was real. They understood that. They saw that in his life he reflected righteousness. He reflected a relationship with the Lord. And therefore his message was believable to them. They didn't laugh and say, what are you talking about, old man? You've been building this silly thing for 120 years like you're building an ocean liner on dry ground. What's wrong with you? You know what? They so respected him that they believed him 
In contrast to Noah, may I remind you about another Old Testament character in Genesis, a man by the name of Lot. Lot warned his son-in-laws about the impending judgment, and you know what it says in Genesis 19? It says they thought he was joking. Remember the story, Lot lived in Sodom and the area of Gomorrah, and the angels came and said, get out of here because we're going to destroy this place. Lot told his son-in-laws, and they thought it says that he was jesting. They must have thought, when did he all of a sudden get so spiritual on us? I mean, we've known this man for years, and he's never talked to us about the Lord. We've never seen any demonstration of righteousness in him. When did he get spiritual all of a sudden? In other words, he was so much like the world around him that he had no spiritual credibility. They thought he was joking. Now, who are you like? Noah or Lot? Now, even if your family is not saved, the question is, do you have spiritual credibility with them? When you tell them about Christ or you live these truths before them, do they think that you're joking? What a joke. You say one thing, but you don't live it. Or do you have credibility and they see spiritual reality of Christ in your life? Both Noah and Lot announced judgment. Noah's family took him seriously. Lot's family thought he was a joke. At least those son-in-laws did. So as we await Christ's judgment and coming, we're not going to be judged, but after the coming, the judgment. What should we be doing? Number one, rejoice that you are safe in the ark of Jesus Christ. I hope that every day you thank God for your salvation, that you never take that for granted, that you never feel like you're beyond that. That's so basic and elementary. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, that he saved us to the praise of the glory of his grace. The purpose of him saving you is so that you would turn around and praise him for that glorious grace. So I hope that you rejoice in the ark, the ark of safety of Jesus Christ. Secondly, you're to live godly. In light of the fact that everything's going to be destroyed, don't get too comfortable. In light of the fact that you're going to stand before him and you want to give an account of godly deeds and living. And the fact is that you have an opportunity to hasten the coming of Jesus Christ. And so the third thing we're to do is tell others the gospel. Tell others what it means to be saved. I've been reading a book. Our men have been going through a book, The Disciplines in the Christian Life. And the writer has told us this week, we studied it, that evangelism is a discipline. It is a discipline. If you don't plan on it, you probably won't do it. Discipline yourself to tell others about Christ. Let's bow for prayer. You never want to hear the word of God without some response of obedience to his word. This morning, you've heard the broad principle here and spiritual truth is that God delivers the godly from judgment. I hope you thank God for that. Are you in the ark of Jesus Christ? If you are, thank him for that. Praise him for that. Because someday, judgment will come. Someday it will come, and then it's too late. If you're not in the ark of Jesus Christ, you can be the ark of safety, security, I invite you to come up after we close our service. One of our leaders will be right up here at the platform, the communion table, and he'll be happy to speak to you about how you can know for certain that you're forgiven and have a relationship with Christ and that you will never be judged for your sins. Father, very sobering passage of Scripture to think of what the judgment floodwaters were really like. But Jesus said that the tribulation period is such a time that has never even occurred on the earth. It's going to be even more severe than what it was in the days of Noah. Father, in light of knowing about judgment, I pray that you'll help us to live godly. Lord, it's so easy to get attached 
to things around us, to long for things, to covet, to make it our goal to have creature comforts. And yet a portion of scripture like this just snaps us back to spiritual reality. And we realize all these things that we find so appealing will someday be burned up. I pray that you'll help us as your people to reflect you in godly lives, godly living. Lord, to reflect you especially with our families, that we would have spiritual credibility, that we would not say one thing and do another thing, that we would be consistent. And where we have blown it, Lord, I pray that we'll humble ourselves and ask those, especially in our families, to forgive us. Father, I pray that you help us also to evangelize, to care enough about the lost and in obedience to the Great Commission to tell others about you, to be alert. Lord, I thank you for the safety we have in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the security of being in you. And Lord, that doesn't encourage us to live loosely. That encourages us to live godly because who would want to sin against such grace? And I pray this all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Toward the end of the program today, Pastor Steve said this, This is what Noah did while he waited for the waters of the flood of judgment. He lived godly, and he proclaimed a message of repentance and righteousness. That's what we are supposed to be doing now. A good reminder for us. Our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, is the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you are in the Clearwater area, you have a standing invitation to worship with the others at Lakeside. Tell them you heard about the church through this radio broadcast. Oh, and then please join us next time as we continue with this very interesting study in Noah and the Flood. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.